Welcome to the Almighty God and Gospel Girl podcast. Each week, you'll hear testimonies that turned failures into hope, despair into inspiration, and darkness into light, as well as actionable tips and strategies that you can implement in your daily life to overcome obstacles that can detour our Christian walk. Galatians 6.2 tells us to carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Now here's your host, the Gospel Girl, Tammy Becker. Letter writing and travel were a common communication in the first and second century Roman Empire. These seven letters from the Lord Jesus were remarkable, if not only because they were direct letters from Christ to the churches, but they were also standouts because they can be understood and applied in three different ways. Hi everyone, I'm Tammy Becker and welcome to the Almighty God and Gospel Girl podcast. And this week is week four in our brand new series of Revelation. And our podcast today is titled Personal Letters from the Messiah. Now, my podcast today will be based on the reading of Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And if you would like to follow along with my show notes, or maybe you want to find the links that I mentioned in my broadcast today, um, anything mentioned in the podcast, you can go to the link that's going to be put in my description, or you can visit my website at www.youministries.com and visit the corresponding page. And as we get started today, I would like to remind you, as always, do not take my word or anyone's word for what you read. Get yourself in the Bible and let God discern his word to you. I'm only human. I make many mistakes and I do not claim to know and understand everything in the Bible as no one should. I just hope that I bring something out in this study that sparks your interest enough to get into God's word and deep dive on your own. So it begins with the church, the body of Christ, and Jesus loves the church and gave himself for it. Now the father gave him this body of believers and it is for us, Jesus prayed in John 17. In this second section of Revelation, we see things that are church-related things. The church <clears throat> as a body is mentioned 19 times up to chapter 4, and then is conspicuous by its absence. So not once after that is the church referenced as it has been taken out of the world, removed from the earth. So leading up to that, the Lord Jesus himself sent seven letters to the seven churches with unique and challenging messages. Now, we still have a mystery to solve as to how the letters to the churches that existed 2,000 years ago can be the things that are. Remember what Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 said, Therefore write the things that you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. So, 
Let's move in to part two and try to understand Jesus's counsel to his church, the things which are, in seven letters written to seven churches in of John's day. So beginning with an understanding of how we must approach the interpretations of these letters. So based on how these letters are structured and what they contain, we must use three complementary methods of interpretation that a lot of people use. Now, all three methods are valid and each provide us with unique insight on what Jesus wanted us to have here. First, we, we must read these letters literally, taking them exactly for what they say. They are real letters written by Jesus through John's hand. Now, I know it's hard, but it's true. They had real audiences in mind, men and women who lived in John's day. And these letters made their way to their intended audiences in Ephesus, Samaria, and elsewhere exactly as Jesus intended. Now, letter writing and travel were a common communication in the first and second century of the Roman Empire. These seven letters from the Lord Jesus were remarkable, if not only because they were direct letters from Christ to the churches, but they were also standouts because they can be understood and applied in three different ways. First, they had a direct message to the local churches of John's day, real people in a real place. But they also, all seven, paint a composite picture of the church in all ages. When we read each one, there's a message for you and your church today. And then lastly, the seven letters also track with the panoramic history of the church from the Pentecost to the second coming, from the upper room to the upper air. I mean, each letter representing seven distinct periods of church history. For example, Ephesus represents the apostolic church, Lacedonia, uh, Laodicea, represents the apostate church and what they tell us about the church history is largely fulfilled and now on the record which makes these chapters just extraordinary just extraordinary so when John wrote down the vision he delivered each one of the letters to the seven churches in a well-defined and definite format that includes these elements one Jesus Christ, glorified, was emphasized in addressing each church. Two, each letter is addressed to the angel of each church. An angel is a human messenger, likely the pastor of the church. Three, most of the letters begin with the words, I know your works, and all with the implication. Number four, most start with a word of accommodation and then a word of condemnation. The exception is there is no word of condemnation to Samaria or Philadelphia. Samaria was the martyr church in Philadelphia, the missionary church, and was getting out. 
his word. Jesus has no word of accommodation for Laodicea, the apostate church. Number five, each letter ends with a warning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So now let's explore one of the seven remarkable messages and take heart to what the Lord Jesus is saying to them and to us. So as we start with the name of each church and its historical setting, Ephesus was a port city and it was it was located in the Mediterranean Sea. Its name meant desirable or desired. It was one of the chief seaports connecting the eastern and the western ends of the Roman Empire. The tremendous flow of goods through this port helped make the city very wealthy. Now seaports brings ships and ships bring sailors and travelers. So the city featured many temples devoted to many Roman gods. The largest was the temple to Artemis and Diana filled with prostitutes. Now in, and in the midst of all this like hustling and bustling city, we also have one of the largest, most influential churches in the first century. It counted Paul, John, and Timothy among among its leaders over the years, and it featured prominently it's in the uh, book of Acts and the epistles. So letter one to the church in Ephesus, love me again. We have two epistles to the Ephesians, one that Paul wrote, and now this one that Lord Jesus gave through John, Ephesus called the light of Asia, was a fabulous place when John and Paul lived there in the first century. Now, Paul came to Ephesus on his third missionary journey and sent the word of God out from the school of Tyrannus. Um, Of this experience, Paul wrote, for a great and effective door has opened to me and there are many adversaries. And you can find that in first 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. Now, later, John, the apostle of love and the son of thunder, quote, <laughs> came, came to Ephesus as a pastor, and he was exiled later to Patmos, where the Lord gave him this revelation. Then, after 10 years of exile and prison, he returned to Ephesus. As a result, of their ministries here, a huge number of people had turned to Christ. Acts chapter 19 verse 10 says that everyone who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And not everyone turned to Christ, but everyone had heard. Even the Roman empires and the nobility of that day heard the gospel. This was probably the greatest movement of the Spirit of God that never has been duplicated in the history of the church. The gospel had such an impact on Ephesus that four great towers were placed at the harbor entrance, each inscribed with the emblem of the cross and individually dedicated to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
You know, when I studied this, I didn't know that. One pillar still stands today. It bears the symbol of the cross. Other evidence of the gospel's impact are the many pagan temples turned into churches. Ephesus was both the religious and the commercial center of the world at that time, influencing both East and West Asia and Europe. So when Paul landed at the harbor in Ephesus, he looked down like Harbor Boulevard, all in white marble, and he walked by magnificent buildings and temples. A large market sprawled on his right as he went up the boulevard, and ahead of him on the side of a mountain was a theater that seated 20,000 people. And then off to his left sat an amphitheater that welcomed audiences of over 100,000 people. It hosted destination resorts where emperors vacationed at that time. But to say Ephesus in the first century, anyone immediately thought of the Temple of Diana, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was the largest Greek temple ever constructed, four times larger than the Parthen in Athens. The temple actually served as the Bank of Asia with a vast depository of money. It boasted an art gallery, but behind a purple curtain stood the lewd and crude image of Diana, the goddess of fertility. She was many-breasted, carried a club in one hand and trident in the other, and was the most sacred idol of heathenism. And she was worshipped by more people than any other idol at the time. Diana of Ephesians, demanded the best, you know, the religious rights of sensuality and the wildest sexual deviances, both like excessive and vicacious at that time. This was the world before which the church of Ephesus stood as a light in the darkness. Jesus Christ, described here as holding the church in his hand well under his control, walks up and down judging the seven golden lampstands. He has seven words of commendation for this church. One, I know your works. Jesus is speaking now to the believers. The Lord Jesus never asks the lost world for good works, but after you're saved, he encourages us with all we can do for him as spirit-filled believers. He tells them, well done. Number two, I know your labor. Labor, unlike just work, implies weariness. The Ephesian church works hard but is weary. Number three, I know your patience. Yet even in their weariness, they bear it patiently. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Number four, you cannot bear those who are evil. They would not endure evil men. Number five, you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. They tested everyone who came to Ephesus claiming to be an apostle. They would 
asked them if they had seen the resurrected Christ. If they were liars, they asked them to leave town. The Lord Jesus commended them for testing people who said they spoke for God. This is needed today more than ever. Number six, you have persevered and have patience. For Jesus' name's sake, they were bearing the cross. They preached Christ. They believed in the virgin birth of Christ. They believed in his deity. They believed in a sacrificial death and resurrection, and they paid a price for their belief. Seven, and have not become weary. You can get weary in the work of Christ, but it is tragic if you get weary of the work of Christ. They still wanted to work for him. They were just tired. These words of accommodation the Lord Jesus gave to the local church at Ephesus also applied to the period of the church history between the Pentecost and AD 100, which the Ephesian church represents. Now he has one word of condemnation. You're leaving your first love in verse four. They had lost that intense and enthusiastic devotion to the person of Christ. The Holy Spirit had brought the believers in Ephesus into an intimate and personal relationship to Jesus Christ. Their love for the Lord was very important to Christ. And they weren't yet too far gone, but they, they were on their way. Their doctrine was on track, but their personal relationship to Jesus Christ was drifting. So what should they do about it? The Lord said, remember, excuse me, remember what it was like when you first came to me. Remember what Jesus meant to you. If you've become cold to that memory, stir, stir it up. You can get it back to that same place and repent in verse five. Christians need to repent like Likely often and sincerely, we need to break the shell of self-sufficiency, the crust of conceit, the shield of sophistication, the veneer of vanity. Get rid of the fake religious words and looking like we're some great saint. Repent. Repentance means to turn back to him. And it's the message for believers. Unsaved people do not repent. Instead, they need to turn to Christ for salvation. When they turn to Christ, they will turn from their sin. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. But the church, we need to remember, repent and return to him. Or else, that's right. If we refuse to turn back to God, he says, I will remove your lampstand. Christ is still watching the lamps, and he doesn't mind trimming the wicks or even using the snuffer when a lampstand refuses to reflect his light. Then Jesus told them, you do not have this to your credit. You hate the Nicolaitans' business. I hate it too. There was a man, Nicholas, of... um, he he was a man that led 
a cult that taught you that you must indulge in sin in order to understand it. So remember the Ephesians lived their days in the front of the temple to Diana. So this cult gave themselves over to the sensuality, saying sins didn't touch the spirit. So the church in Ephesus hated it. A little later on, we'll see that the church in Pergamon tolerated it. So do you hear this warning? The Lord asks in verse 7, not everyone can hear the word of God. They may register the audible sound, but they miss the message. The Lord Jesus prompts this phrase to alert dull ears and prompt spiritual per- perception. But he used this phrase a lot in the Gospels. So if you listen to what the spirit in the teacher of the church is saying, as a genuine believer, you can overcome this through the blood of the lamb. And in fact, the overcomers will eat of the tree of life. Remember in the Garden of Eden, the man was forbidden to eat of the tree of life, Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24. But in heaven, the no trespassing sign will be taken down and we will have all the privileges of eating of the tree of life then. We are going to live as we have never lived before in God's new garden. The tree of life also shows up four times in Proverbs, and it's used there to help us understand why it's in Genesis and Revelation. So Solomon calls trees of life wisdom, Proverbs 3.18, righteousness, Proverbs 11.30, satisfied hope, Proverbs 13.12, and wholesome speech, Proverbs 15.4. These are all fruits that Adam would have had and what the Lord will provide the overcomers. This was the hope of the church of Ephesus, the apostolic church, the church at its best. So the letter to Ephesus gives us a general overview of how the church collectively evolved in its earliest days. It started with its first love, fully aware that it was all about Christ and eagerly awaiting his return. I hope that you join me back here next week as we dive into the next letter to the next church. And don't forget to visit my website at www.youministries.com. If you would like to study the Bible with us, go visit us um, on our Facebook group, which is Girl Read Your Bible. And this is Tammy Becker. I hope that you have a blessed week. And I'll see you back here next time. See ya. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to another weekly episode of the Almighty God and Gospel Girl podcast. If you have a testimony you would like to share with us, please contact us through our website at youministries.com. That's Y-O-U-Ministries.com. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.